so over the next several weeks, we are going to look at what Jesus had to say to seven specific churches about 2,000 years ago. Here's what we're going to discover, though, is that people haven't changed all that much across time. And what Jesus had to say to them still has a lot of relevance to us today. Have you ever thought about this question? And believe me, I have. What would Jesus say to today's churches? If Jesus were to say, hey, Washington Heights, what would he say? What would he say we're doing well? What would he say needs improvement? What would he give us as direction to make that happen? And that's a pattern that we're going to see in every one of the addresses to these different churches is here's what's going well, here's what needs to improve, and here's how to get there. And I think we will discover there's not just something for Washington Heights which is not a building, it's not an organization, it's us, it's people. The church is people who follow after the Jesus of the Bible. So here is how that section of Revelation, the final book in the Bible, begins. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and you might say, huh? What is that saying? And there's so much imagery in the book of Revelation, but let me break this down for you. The first church address is in a city called Ephesus. That's where we're going to begin. The words of him who holds the seven stars, that is a picture of somebody who is sovereign, somebody who is in control, somebody who holds ownership, and he's walking among the lampstands. What are those? Those are the churches. Jesus is not somewhere far off that he walks among his people And he understands what's happening, and he's close by. So, to the one who is over all things, what would he say to those who were seeking to follow after him in the real world? So, let's begin in Ephesus, and let me give you a little bit of a picture of that city, because that's far from here, and again, this is a long time ago, about 2,000 years. Is there any relevance to us today? Well, the city of Ephesus had a logo, a brand. This is a coin that was produced in that city, and their logo was the B. Can you imagine if there was one of the 50 U.S. states that used some imagery around a bee or a beehive um, as their symbol of being very industrious and hardworking kind of people? Crazy idea, I know, but some people who think that's really important. That was their brand. And not only was that sort of their cultural environment, they also had a spiritual environment. Here is some of the remnants of the temple to the goddess Artemis. And that name probably doesn't mean a lot to us today, but it was real big 2,000 years ago. And the hub, the central location of Artemis worship is in the city of Ephesus. Here's a rendering of what that temple looked like back in the day. And it was a big deal. And it dominated the city landscape. And it turned Ephesus into a tourist mecca as people came to worship here in this environment to something that is entirely different than the Jesus of the Bible. It was also a center of learning. Here are the remnants of a two-story library. And at the time, this was the second largest library in the known world. The biggest one was in Alexandria, Egypt. But this was a collection of information, a collection of books, and people valued learning greatly. It was also a transportation center. And it was at the crossroads of the ancient world there. It was a major port hub of the day. And look at this road that is 2,000 years old. Talk about some quality engineering. 
Meanwhile, in Weber and Davis County, it's a little bit different. Kind of makes me cry a little bit. Anybody else getting their car aligned here in the uh, springtime? Um, moving on, it was also um, a place of entertainment. This is an amphitheater I had in about 30 years ago, the opportunity to go to the city of Ephesus, and I sat near the top row. Somebody went down to the bottom and just talked in his normal voice, and you could hear it as if he was standing two feet away. How brilliant were people then to accomplish this without a lot of electronics in the speakers like we have today and to be able to put on these performances and this was a regular place where that happened. It was also a place of business. This is a merchant's home in Ephesus that has been uncovered. And so this isn't the king you know, or the mayor or somebody who's in charge. This is just somebody who is doing business and you can tell for 2,000 years ago, this is a pretty nice place. And so they were successful in what they were doing, and it was a place where people were doing very well. It was also a seat of power. These are the remnants of a different temple. As you probably know, in the Roman Empire, there was a succession of Caesars, right? Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and a whole bunch of them in a row. Well, during the time when this letter was written, the Caesar's name was Domitian. And before Domitian, the Caesar said, after I die, I want you to worship me, Roman Empire, as somebody who was a god in the flesh. Well, Domitian said, don't wait till I'm dead. Worship me now. And so he constructed this temple where people were invited to come and to bend their knee and declare that Caesar is Lord. And in fact, this is what that temple looked like. Three stories about the size of a football field. It was meant to be looking large and in charge. And they even uncovered the very altar on which people were to bring a sacrifice and to bend their knee. And on this altar is just a listing of all the military victories that Domitian has accomplished. And in that setting, all of that, here are people following the Jesus of the Bible. And there's a lot of different directions in which to be pulled. There's even spiritual opportunities to say that somebody besides Jesus is Lord. These were successful people under a good amount of stress. And here's what we know from their work ethic and what Jesus is going to say to them. They were very busy. And what we're going to discover is that Jesus is going to say something about what they get right, about what needs improvement, and about how to get there. So what would Jesus say to busy people? Would you say that maybe we live in a busy time? I would. That sometimes we brag about being busy. Somebody asks us, how you doing? Typical answer, oh, busy. Maybe really busy or even crazy busy. And maybe we feel guilty if we're not busy. And we talk about how busy our kids' schedules are. It just seems like it's the day in which we live. And I think successful people under stress, busy people in the middle of all kinds of opportunities to be drawn in a whole host of different directions can gain something from what Jesus had to say to these people. So what did they get right? Not everything about being busy is wrong. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is 
a good report. This is Jesus saying, hey, there's some things really going right in your world and in your lives. First, they did right. He says, I know your works. And the word there is a special word. And it means ongoing, nonstop, moving forward, pursuing, you know, things and forward movement. That can be a really good thing. So they were busy. They were working hard. And they were working it not just hard, but also right. They stayed right. I know that you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And the implication is here, in that altar to the Caesar Domitian, you have not bent your knee and offered a sacrifice and said that somebody other than Jesus is Lord. You have been faithful. And that doesn't mean they were perfect, but it means that they were continuing to follow Jesus despite the opportunities to go in some different directions. And then third, they thought right. You have tested those who call themselves apostles. So in other words, they were discerning. And they didn't just buy everything that came their way. And not everything that is spiritual is holy. And so they would determine whether or not it's something that matches up with what God has revealed um, in what he's already said to us. But they exercised discernment. They were not gullible. Now imagine for a moment that this is all that you had. And if Jesus were to say this to Washington Heights, hey, you're doing right, you're staying right, and you're thinking right, you're being discerning, you're being faithful, and you're working hard, I think we go, man, that's a great review. And thank you, Jesus, if we held that letter in our hands, and of course, if Jesus wrote it, it would be in red ink, because we know that Jesus only speaks in red ink. If you have no idea what that's about, the translations of the Bible put the words of Jesus in red, um, and it's just an easier way, and I think it's kind of cool, but it would be a little weird if it was like that. But here's what they, you know, are thinking at this point. They have to be, to say, wow, that's really great. And I think there are plenty of things, you know, in our journey where Jesus could look at us and he would say, hey, you know what? That's really good. And that's what they discovered. But that's not the only thing, though, that's involved in following the Jesus of the Bible. Would you agree that there are times we can do the right thing, but we can do it maybe for less than the right reasons? That maybe we're just going through the motions sometimes? or our motivations are more self-serving. Well, I'll do that because that will lead people to think of me a certain way. They'll think of me in a better way than they might otherwise. Or maybe, well, I just gotta do it because it's just one of the things I gotta do. My heart's not really in it. So what are they missing, right? You can do all the right things, you can be faithful, you can exercise discernment, but even that can lead us to look like this the church lady from Saturday Night Live, right? And she's after it and discerning what is right and wrong and not afraid to tell you about it. What's missing from this picture is what was missing in Ephesus, and that is love, right? We can do a lot of things, but if there is not love behind it, we can miss it altogether, one time the Apostle Paul said, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, right, and have all this incredible gifting, but if I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. And we missed it all together. And after all, Jesus didn't say to his followers one day, hey, this is how the whole world will know that you are my followers, that you get after it and you meet the goals, but you miss the relationships. 
that you have a lot of activity, but you don't have a whole lot of productivity. This is what Jesus did say. This is how the whole world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's what was missing in Ephesus. So, what is it that busy people often miss? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, here's one of the challenges when we read words in the Bible. We don't always have the tone of voice. And it would be really easy to come to this first phrase here and go, and this is what I have against you, and just get ready to get punched in the spiritual face. But I really believe the tone in these words is a kind tone. It is the tone of somebody who cares about somebody, who loves somebody, and longs for them to come back to them. Just like reaching out to a friend and not coming on strong, not being harsh, not being mean, but just inviting them back. Here's why I believe that's true. There are a number of metaphors in the Bible for our relationship with God. Things that are not literal, but they're shared as pictures and images so that we would understand the meaning that comes along with them. Let me give you just a couple of those. God is king. He's the king, we are his people. God is a father, a family relational term meant to communicate the closeness, protection, provision. God is a friend, somebody who walks by our side faithfully. And then God, even as a husband, and if we think that's a little bit weird, again, remember this is a picture meant to communicate the kind of emotion that is found in a marriage relationship. And what was happening in the city of Ephesus is that they were doing all the right things, but they were missing the love that was behind it. Made me think of some uh, marriage ceremonies, you know, that I've been a part of. I've seen some interesting things at marriage ceremonies. I've seen a few groomsmen go over. That's always a treat, you know, when that happens in the middle of a ceremony. I was doing one in downtown Ogden, and the lady who was hired to be the videographer, all of a sudden, boom, straight back. Um, that was awkward um, in the middle of that. Um, I've seen the bride not show up for about an hour and a half and everybody outside the building waiting for her to, to drive in, um, which she eventually did, but there were some interesting conversations about what was going to happen if she never showed up. Um, but I also heard about a wedding ceremony that was um, officiated not by me, by somebody else um, in Southern California, and it was two French people who were getting married, and their comprehension of English, little less than 100%. And so when the wedding vows were exchanged, they didn't get it exactly right. To love and to cherish. Now you repeat after me. To love in the church. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> to have and to hold. To have or else. <laughs> and this flustered the guy who was officiating this. And at the end, he just said, okay, well, go in peace. Fera Jaca, Sacre Bleu. And then somebody, as they turn to walk down, goes, hey, you forgot to have them kiss. Oh, yeah, so come on back, and you may kiss the bride. And they kissed. And they were French, so they kissed some more and <laughs> kissed some more. Here's, here's why we mention all of that. Right, that we can go through the event, but we can miss the kiss. 
We can miss the closeness, the intimacy, the personal nature of a relationship with God. And we can put it into the realm where we think it's all about, okay, I got to do my part and pull my weight and make sure that I measure up and check off a bunch of things off the box. But at its heart and soul, a relationship with God is personal. And behind it is a God who loves you so much that he left heaven for you and suffered for you and died for you and rose again for you, all motivated by God's love. Not so that we can get a checklist and begin to start keeping it in the hopes that one day God will give us a thumbs up. God loves you. What are some of the first love traits? Because after all, these are people who have, you know, kind of left the love out. And as I was thinking about that just on a human level, you know, there's a sense of wonder and of time together that we want to have, a desire to know the other person, an eagerness to please the other person. Maybe in that infatuation stage, you know, we just did things crazy things that we didn't do any other time with anybody else and, and it was just part of discovering what that was all about. You know, you ever done this or maybe you've heard about this, you know, a couple of people, they're dating, they're on the phone and like, okay, will you hang up? Okay. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm still here too. You hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. And if you're overhearing that, that's gross, right? But if you're in the middle of it, if that's you, one of those people, it's pretty cool, right? Because it's, it's this. But Jesus' words to those people are these. You have lost your first love. You're doing a lot of things, but you have lost your first love. Okay, so what is it that busy people need to hear? How can we get right what has gone wrong or what we've left out or something that needs to be improved? He gives us a couple clues about this. The first thing is to remember. Jesus says, remember therefore from where you have fallen to go back and maybe, you know, using the same illustration of what it's like for us when we have that first sort of love of infatuation, um, what was it like, you know, when you began your relationship with Jesus? And I've shared parts of my story before, but, you know, it goes something like this. When I was a kid, I was always made to go to church, brought to church. You know, I like to say when I was young, I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church all the time and just had to go and look forward to the day when I would make my own decision and not have to do that. Grew up in a church that had um, a tradition called Lent where you give up something in a, for a period of time before Easter in one year. I gave up church for Lent and <laughs> snarky kid back then too. So at... In my late teens, I was invited to go to a, a youth camp, a Christian youth camp, and I didn't want to go. Um, my mom, though, asked me to go, and I respected my mom too much, and so I said, okay, I'm going to go. But my friend and I, we smuggled beer into that youth retreat. That just gives you an idea of where I was at the time. And in a service there that involved communion, it got real. 
and it got personal. And there was the beginning of a relationship with God that wasn't, okay, just got to show up at the deal all the time and do certain things and you better be good. All of a sudden, that's personal. And I can remember those times of picking up the Bible after that and it's like the words jump off the page and are alive. And a praying prayer is just simply of gratitude. God, thank you. Thank you. And I've been given so much more than I ever deserve. And when things get a little bit stale and dry, it's good for people to remember, to go back to those moments when things were alive and vital and real. Um, Dr. John Gottman is one of the leading Christian um, counselors of this day, um, especially in the area of marriage. He says this, most couples find that recalling their past together recharges their relationship in the here and now. And we may think, you know what? We should go to the French Riviera. That's what's going to, you know, kind of reignite this, this spark in our relationship. He's saying, no, you know what? Go back. Go back to the season of life and, and joy and connection and engagement with each other. Remember. And then also, Jesus says, Repent. They've missed their first love, so remember, go back to where your first love was alive and well. Now repent. Now repent is a word, a Bible word, that I think has been co-opted by some crazy people um, in our day. You know, it sounds like, repent or you're going to burn and fry like bacon, you know, in hell. Um, here's what repent literally means. It is a change of mind that is followed by a change of direction. So we change our mind about something and then our life turns in that direction as well. But you know the implication that clearly comes along with the word repent? You have time and you have an opportunity. There is hope and you have a future and there is an opportunity in front of you to respond to that. Every follower of Jesus has a past and every person who's struggling has a future. And so God invites these people to not only turn the direction of their minds, but to turn the direction of their lives, to go back to when it was good, and to return to do the works you did at first. What is it that made your life together with God come alive? What are those things that you did? Go back to those things. And I know that when my prayer life feels like it's just bouncing off the ceiling or I'm praying like a Spice Girl, you know what that is? I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want, <laughs> right? We just want things from God. But it goes back to, God, thank you. Thank you for the rescue. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you have accomplished. What are the things that you did it first when your life with God was alive and well. Here's how he wraps up the section to this church in Ephesus. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. By the way, they're going to be mentioned again in another address to another church, so we're going to save that for another day. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me take a little bit of a survey. How many people here have at least one ear um, to hear? 
Okay, that's good. Here's the point of this, right? It's easy for us to take what he has been talking about and apply it to somebody else. And to talk about, yeah, you know who needs to hear that? That church down the street needs to hear that. Or that person that's a part of my life or that I work with every day, they need to hear this. This is a way of saying, this is for you and me. That if we have ears, let us hear what Jesus is saying to the churches, which is not a building, it's not an organization, it's you and me. So it's not for somebody else. This is for us. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And oh boy, is that last sentence pregnant with beautiful meaning and imagery. Real quickly, what it alludes to is something that's referred to somewhere else in the book of Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is that? Again, by way of imagery, that there's another day coming when everybody who has put hope and trust in Jesus is going to be in an event over which Jesus is going to preside, and it's going to be awesome. And any reception, any party, any feast, any event you've ever been to will pale in comparison as people recognize there is enough for all, and you have been made well, and you are here to stay. You are home. And Jesus is saying these words to people who are living in this world, but saying, this is already something that belongs to you. So you are not earning your way into a hopeful day with God somewhere in the future. If you've trusted him, you belong to him. You are his beloved And there's a longing in every human heart to be someone's beloved. And that's what Jesus is picturing here. That's how Jesus feels about you. Heard this story about a five-year-old girl. She'd been to a wedding that day with her family and she was put to bed that night. Dad comes up an hour later to check on her. She's still wide awake and he goes, honey, what are you, what are you thinking about? Why can't you sleep? thinking about my marriage. It's five. And one day I'm going to marry a prince. And daddy, I think you're going to be my prince. <laughs> it's getting a little things jumbled up in there. But dad goes, well, I can't be your prince one day because I'm already mommy's prince. Well, then who will be my prince, daddy? Well, it could be somebody, you know, maybe Joey or, or, or maybe Bobby. But chances are, it's somebody that you don't even know yet. And because of that, sounds really risky. The best bet with anything Prince-related, let Daddy decide about that. <laughs> but there is a longing in every human soul to be someone's beloved. And here in this moment, Jesus says to people who's even had their hearts grow a little bit cold, you are God's beloved. And one day, he will bring you home. But in the here and now, you don't need to prove or accomplish something to make that happen. I think part of the beautiful picture of what is shared here is the reality about how people fall short at times and in different ways. 
but how the power and the love of God is still at work in those who have put trust in him. One of the things I love about 12-step groups, we do one here called Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday nights, and it starts when anybody goes to a microphone. It always starts the same way. They say, hi, my name is, and they insert their name, and then they share part of their story. So for me, you know, hi, my name is Roy, and I've abused alcohol, and I struggle with pride and, and control and things like that. And then there's always this response, hi, Roy. Right, it's let's get started by getting the pretense out of the way. And let's just be honest about who we are. And then there's a response of acceptance. And there's a powerful dynamic that happens there. And I think there's a way for us even to practice that maybe here in this moment. Because I want to do a couple things with you, and I'm going to invite you to say this out loud. You can whisper it if you want to. And if you're watching online, you can say this in front of your computer screen or your 65-inch LED TV that you're watching on your couch um, with your coffee in your hand. You're invited as well. I'm going to have you say two things. Here's the first one. I'm going to have you say, hi, my name is, and then insert your name, and I'm a sinner. Can we do that? Here we go. Ready? Hi, my name is Roy, and I'm a sinner. Feels good to be honest, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, here's the second one. We're going to say, hi, my name is, and insert your name. I am God's beloved. You ready? Here we go. Hi, my name is Roy, and I am God's beloved. Both of those things are true. And you know what it means? It means that you and I have nothing to prove. You and I are not earning and working and being better than to work our way into God's graces. And many times we mistakenly believe that Jesus is demanding that we love him more. Come on, pull it together, try harder, do more, show more effort, get more things right than you got wrong. You know what the message was to the people at Ephesus? Got some things right, they got something wrong. Jesus is telling him, he loves me most. You belong to him. You are his beloved. And that is all accomplished by his love and his grace and his power that has made that available. Would you bow your heads with me? So Lord Jesus, how can we not do anything but say thank you for amazing grace that has reached down to rescue people like us. Got every bit of it undeserved and yet so freely given by a God of great grace. And God, help us to be honest about who we are and what lives in these hearts and souls of ours. And God, especially today, if our love has grown a little bit cold, God, may we recognize that we've been set free to do the right thing for the right reasons because we got nothing to prove to a God who says, you belong to me. You are my beloved. And so God, may that inspire us all the more to just seek to honor you, to walk with you humbly, to discover more of what life together with you is all about. And may it lead us closer and closer to you. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.